listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. My name is Mark and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And we're so glad that you are here today, whether this is your first week with us or you've been here for maybe from the beginning, we believe this. No one is ever here by accident. That whatever we think brought us here, whether it was to see the grandkids or it is just to visit or maybe to check out a, a different church, maybe moving to the area, we believe that God directs every one of our steps. And he has a purpose for us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to Matthew chapter 5. What we typically do here at Bethel is... We usually pick a book and we will walk through that entire book over many, many weeks. Um, so what we've done, instead of going through the entire book of Matthew, we are focusing on the next several weeks on the Sermon of the Mount. So you'll find that in Matthew chapter 5. And here's where we left off. We started last week that Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus. He quickly moves to Jesus' baptism. He then follows up the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And so by this time, John the baptizer is already sitting in prison. And Jesus begins going out all throughout Galilee. He begins doing all kinds of miracles of healing and releasing people from demons. And his popularity is through the roof. And so people are coming from all over to see this man everybody is going to see for healing. And how the sermon begins... It begins with this word, the Beatitudes. And we saw last week, <clears throat> do you remember what the word means? What does Beatitudes mean? See who is listening. It means blessed. And we talked about that it isn't usually what we think about. You know, I'm blessed because, you know, my kids were, did this. Or I'm blessed because I have this. When Jesus is using the word blessed or Beatitudes, it means that this is someone that God looks on and he finds favor. Or this is someone that has God's approval. And this is my hope and my prayer as we talk through these. We're going to finish the second half today. Is he would actually sit here and we would walk through these scriptures. This is the person God approves of. This is the person God has put his stamp of approval on. That we would read these and we would go, the problem is that's not me. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at with the Beatitudes of beginning the Sermon on the Mount. He is trying to tear down everything these people are standing on. And hopefully that happens for us too. Because I've often thought, have you ever tried to get someone's approval? There's someone in this church... That I have tried and tried and tried. And I cannot win her approval. And it's Hillel. Hillel Chavez. And I don't know what I have done. But this little one wants nothing to do with me. In fact, if I'm around, she usually starts crying. So next week is my week in the nursery. So I'm going to need all you to pray for us. That I can win her approval. 
But we often live these lives where that's really what we want. Everyone wants to be approved. They want to be accepted by other people. And that is a natural part of what is going on. But here's the truth about us. There is nothing in us. There is nothing good enough in us that would ever commend God to give us his approval. There's just not. He has no reason, absolutely no reason to approve or accept us. And so last week we began with the first four Beatitudes. This is a person that God approves of. And the first one was a poor in spirit. This is somebody that acknowledges their spiritual depravity, that they are spiritually bankrupt. And that is someone that God approves of. The second beatitude with those that mourn. Not just a mourning over death, but someone that is mourning over their sin and their condition and the sin of the world. Grieving over what is wrong inside each and every one of us. Well, the third one was a meekness. This is a person that God approves of. This is the person that doesn't feel any entitlement to anything. They're, they're not exerting their, their rights and not expecting things. It's a person that trusts God to work in and for them. A person that's meek is patient. Well, towards sin, it's trusting God to forgive us. We saw it's trusting God to do this new work in us. When people try to continue, maybe even bring up our past and our sins, that we don't have to react because we're trusting God's promises. Then the fourth one was a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. This intense longing for what is true and pure and right. Well, today we're going to pick up in verse 7. But I want to, I want to back up. I want to read this first section for us. But then we're going to hone in on verse 7. So Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds... He, Jesus, went up on the mountain, remember, just off of Togba, and he sat down, and his disciples, they came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, meaning only theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Remember, that was an immediate promise. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and only they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. In church, this is the word of the Lord. Let his saints hear. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning, and it is always good to be in your house with your people. We thank you for our time together of serving one another and 
greeting one another and being able to sing truth of who you are and what you have done, of hearing of your work around the world. And so, Lord, this is a weighty task this morning of holding your word in our hands, opening it together, and what a blessing that should be. Help us to not take this time for granted. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would lead and teach us this morning. And by your spirit and through your son, we ask these things. Amen. So this week I've been thinking, what is then being a Christian? And I think when we hear that, what is it being a Christian? We, we describe it in the things that we're supposed to do. Well, a Christian is someone that goes to church. Or a Christian is someone that prays. A Christian is those that read their Bible. A Christian is those that tries to love their neighbor as yourself. But before we see these Beatitudes, I think we need to make sure we understand something. That a Christian, first of all, is something before they ever go and do something. That we have to be Christian. There is an identity before there is ever an action. And I think that's what Jesus is driving at. Or to say it like my buddy Jacob and Henderson, you do not do to become. You do because you are. And I would say it this way. I think we, without even thinking about it, we get into these lifestyles where we are living in such a way that we are trying to control our Christianity. That's all these things that I'm supposed to be doing. And if I can do it just right or maybe above average, then I'm doing it right. But we do not control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. And I say all of that is because I think this is what Jesus is getting at. That Christianity is not something that is just on the surface of a person. Because those are ones that are coming to see him. So many of these are people that are trusting in rituals and traditions and their festivals and even their heritage. And these are the things they think are gaining God's approval. But he wants them to realize that Christianity is not just something you can slap a new coat of paint on. Yeah, it might look right. But Christianity is this thing that has to happen from our core. So let's look at verse 7 again. So the, the fifth of the eight Beatitudes, I, I put the last two together and I'll show you in a minute. So whether there's eight or nine, look at verse 7. He says, blessed, this is someone that God approves of. If you want God's approval, this is who you have to be. You have to be merciful. For they shall receive mercy. So then I need to know, okay, God, then what is merciful? If that's what I need to do, tell me what that is so I can seek and I can become a person that is merciful. Well, I've often heard it this way. Oftentimes, mercy is held up with grace. The grace is this undeserved favor. It's when you get something that you don't deserve. And then mercy is the, the flip side of that. The mercy is not getting then what you do deserve. So if it's punishment or whatever it might be, if that's withheld, then that's mercy. And I think that is part of the definition. 
But I think here there, it's got a, a different or maybe even a deeper meaning. Because this mercy is someone that looks, notices, and, and has this compassion, or we might even say pity on someone. Typically when it has to do with, with sin and evil. So mercy then takes that pity and that compassion that they, they might have, but then being merciful is actually doing something about it. So seeing someone, whether it's sin or evil, having pity or compassion, but then having this desire to relieve their suffering. And so God says, this is a person I approve of. I would say compassion plus action. And then there's that story, that parable you probably heard long ago that plays it really well, of the Good Samaritan. That here's this man traveling from Jerusalem. He's beaten, he's robbed. And along comes two people, along comes a priest. And he probably had some compassion, but what does he do? He passes on by. A Levite comes. Maybe has some pity on this man. But he simply walks on by. But along comes this dirty Samaritan. He sees this man, he has compassion and, and, patty and uh, pity and compassion on this man, but he stops. And he does whatever he can do to relieve this man's suffering. So the mark of being merciful is seeing someone suffering and then being moved by your compassion to help relieve it. But then notice the promise, because every one of these Beatitudes has a promise attached to it. It says, be merciful. Those that are blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we spend a lot of time in teaching team talking about this, that we have to be careful in how we read this because it almost sounds like, okay, if I am merciful, that God is obligated to be merciful to me. And it's like this transaction thing that happens. Well, I do this and God does this. That's not at all what this is talking about because another passage is in Matthew 6 that we'll get to where it talks about forgiveness. But this is not transactional. This is not conditional. Because if that was the case, it would go against all the rest of Scripture. So what is he saying? I think Jesus is saying that showing mercy, if you are able to do that, it is evident that you are one that's actually received mercy. That it becomes evidence of, not a condition of. So the promise is this. If we are merciful, then that is evident that we have already received mercy from Christ through salvation. Because naturally, that is not who we are. But then one day, we know we can stand assured that when we are face to face with God, we will no longer be receiving punishment or judgment, but mercy. That is something that is going to be true. And it's a promise that we are standing on. If I'm able to be merciful. It isn't because I'm really gifted in mercy. Live with me long enough and you know that. But it's evident if I'm able to in any way. It is evident that I have received and I have experienced God's mercy. And the promise is one day I will ultimately receive that. And so here's a word picture that helped put it in perspective for me. When that day comes, when God asks for your record of your mercy at the judgment day, he will not be asking for this punch card 
We don't say, well, here it is. Hey, God, eight hours of mercy. Now, where's my wage? Instead, God is going to be asking for your medical records. You will hand them to him in all lowliness and meekness. And there he will read the evidences of how you trusted him as your divine physician. And how the medicine of his word and the therapy of his spirit took effect in your life. Because you relied on them to heal you of your unmerciful disposition. And when he sees the evidence of your faith and his healing, he will complete your healing and welcome you into this kingdom forever. Therefore, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, then Jesus gives us another one in verse 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when heart is used, he's talking about the, the core of a person. It's what drives us and what motivates us. It's this thing that guides us along the way. And he said, that that is in you, it must be pure. Meaning free of any taint of evil. Not one drop of it. You don't have mixed motives. You do not have divided loyalties. You have a singleness and devotion to God. That is a pure heart. But it goes even beyond the surface. In fact, Matthew 23 gives us two great pictures of this. When he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, Yes, you look clean on the outside. You look like a whitewashed tomb. But inside you reek of death. Or you take a cup and it, it sure is clean on the outside. But when you look inside it is filthy. And so Jesus is saying those that are approved by God. They are blessed are those who are pure. Not only on the surface but in the center of their being. At the source of every activity, thought, word and deed. So for just a minute think about how troublesome than that is for us. Because Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and he tells us your heart is beyond cure. But notice the promise somehow for they, only those that have a pure heart, they shall see God. So the only way you get to see him one day is if your heart is pure. And I hope we have this sense of then I'm actually then without any hope because I know my heart. And yeah, it might look good at times of the things I'm doing, but deep down I know that isn't true. But I think that's the point. I think Jesus is trying to tear down everything that they could possibly be trusting in because they thought they were doing all the things. Man, I'm doing this thing. I'm going to this festival I'm participating in this thing. I'm not acting like the Gentiles. I'm going to the, the temple. I'm making my sacrifices. I'm doing all these things. Therefore, my heart must be pure. I'm following the law. Well, then look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, peace is this interesting thing, and 
It's this word that was often used. And it doesn't mean just the absence of any kind of trial or difficulty. You would see someone and you would tell them shalom, which means I desire peace for your entire life. Would you find what you are created for? Would you have this completeness of life? And they would wish this on you when you were greeting one another. A very common phrase. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Meaning only those that are willing to risk pain and discomfort, even to themselves, to make things right. To have peace. Willing to be at this place to bear someone else's hurt, even done to you, so that peace could be maintained. So just think about the last time you were hurt. Think of the last time maybe you were, we might say, sinned against. The last time someone did something to you. It's such this difficult place when that happens that we want that other person to pay. Usually in my house, how it goes, I get my feelings hurt, then I just shut down. I'm just going to distance myself. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to engage. And what that really is, that's me trying to punish the person that did this to me. And I think we often live in this idea that that's what it is. Yeah, I'm trying to work this out. But in some way, I need you to feel some of the pain that you caused me. But being a peacemaker, this idea of forgiveness is being willing to bear the price of how another person has hurt you. You realize that's really what forgiveness is. That yes, you forgive that person, but that is us being willing, being able to bear part of that pain that we want them to have. I forgive you only to the point where I finally forgive you the place where I'm not willing to hold anything against you, that, that I'm willing to let it go and I will bear that burden. So a peacemaker they must be willing to bear one another's hurt, even if they are the ones that have been hurt. And that is why forgiveness is so difficult. But then notice the promise. If you're a peacemaker, you and only you shall be called sons of God. Once again, this isn't transactional. He's not saying, hey, if you can be a peacemaker, if you can do that, then you get to be one of my sons. Actually, you know what? He actually is saying that. He's saying if you can be a peacemaker as I am, then you can be called one of my sons. Well, then look at verse 10. Now, I put the 10 in the next two. I put these next three verses together. I think he's describing one idea. I could be wrong on that, but he says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I think he's talking about there are many forms of persecution. And it comes in a variety of intensities. But here's the truth of a follower of Christ. Second Timothy, you know what it tells us? All who live a godly life for Christ, he says, you will be persecuted. In Acts 5, Peter says he counted it worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. But you know what? We live in this time and we live in this place where we have lots of freedoms. 
We have a lot of freedom in our lives, especially with religion. And I wouldn't trade that. I'm thankful for that. But what do we know? What would we do if those freedoms were taken away? Because we don't know if and when that might happen. But you know, persecution, it can come in all kinds of ways. It could be being excluded from a friend group because you're choosing to take a stance for this. It could be being left out of what someone in a group is doing because you're choosing not to be a part of that. It could be that someone may not want to ever talk to you again. Or we could be living in places where being able to just do what we do, we're doing it at the risk of our lives, our possessions, I think the reason he is showing us this is there always has and there always will be persecution. When there is the message of Christ, it stands against the message and the mindset of the world. Everywhere the message and the truth of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and lived, there will always be persecution. In fact, any time the heart of God and the character of Christ are lived out, you can expect opposition. And the reason is because it is rivaling. Satan is the rival and evil of the world are against those things. So I think he's saying if and when we face any form of mistreatment, you know what he says? Count it a blessing. Because the promise to them and only them is the kingdom of God. That as our lives are reflecting who we live for, There will always be opposition in that. But he takes it a step further. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because you know the truth is, the less you and I are more like the world, the more we will be reviled and persecuted. So if you want the easiest life possible, then be more like the world. But the less like the world we are, the more we will be reviled and persecuted. But if we never suffer any type of mistreatment, if we are never ever ridiculed, I wonder what that says about us. I wonder what that says about our church. If we never face any type of mistreatment or ridicule, what type of church really is that? Now, I'm not saying that we should ever go looking for trouble. I'm not saying that. But we need to understand that the more we are like Christ, the more the world will hate us. And if and when that happens, look at what Jesus says in our last verse today. He says, rejoice. If and when that happens, be glad. And the reason is, your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. I think one of the biggest temptations that we face, at least I know I do, is the pull of this world is so heavy. It is so strong. But I think there's no greater feeling than feeling less and less tethered to this world. In fact, that's probably the best thing that could happen to us. Because then what happens when that persecuting or those evil words and those falsehood comes against us, the less tethered I am to this world, the less that matters to me. 
Because that is the way the world threatens us. That when the world comes at us with all these things, it means I have nothing to lose. That there isn't anything this world could offer me that is greater than what I have in Christ. And that is what I often pray for my kids, that they would treasure Christ more than anything this world could ever offer them. That they wouldn't trade what they have for Christ for anything. But notice the end of that. If and when the world reviles us or persecutes us, he says this. Just know you're in great company. And so let me kind of walk through these real quick to put them in one visual for us. These are the people that God blesses, that he gives his favor, that, that God approves the poor in spirit. When they recognize their spiritual poverty and that they have are totally bankrupt, those that mourn, when they see sin in themselves and others, there's a grieving over sin. There's a meekness. When we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, we're moved to mourn over sin. And the more we see it, the more we mourn. And that creates a meekness in us. In fact, the longer you're a Christian, probably the less you should feel like it. Because you're going to become more and more aware of your sin. But being meekness knows God is the one doing a work in me. You're thinking of hunger and thirst more for righteousness. And it's a hunger and thirst that never gets completely satisfied. And then today we see when you begin putting all these together, it creates a person that is merciful, looks at others, has compassion, and acts on it. This working creates a, a pure, a pureness in heart. God approves of people that are peacemakers, that are willing to do what it takes to bear the burden and the pain to create peace. When you put all of these together, this is a person that the world will revile. This is a person that Satan will oppress. This is a person that will be persecuted. But the truth is, this should feel absolutely impossible for us. Yeah, we might win a few battles along the way. But when God is the standard of all of those, there's no way we'll ever be able to hit that mark. But I think that is Jesus' purpose of setting all of this up. I think it's a test of the authenticity, of the, the pureness of their faith. He wants them to take an honest look at who they are and where they are. But I think it's also to assess their spiritual health. So I don't think the Beatitudes were given to say, look, man, I think I can do this. I, I think if I just tried a little bit harder, I could actually earn God's approval. I think Jesus is doing something. He is wanting to take people to the end of themselves. That when they come off of this mountain, when they begin to walk back to their homes, they would almost feel utterly defeated. Because they would know there's no way I could ever do this. It's because Jesus wants them to know something. That his father in heaven is going to do a work. And as we sang this morning, he will never, ever give up. That one day, all of those things 
will be true of us. But it's not because of who we are or anything we have in us. It's because of who he is. So it's not what we do that makes us a Christian. We do not do to become. We do because we are. That we need to stop trying to control our Christianity and let it rather control us. That there has to be this identity that Jesus is getting at so there can be any evidence of all of these things. But if there is one person, and I wish I'd gotten demeanor, if there is one person that probably ever got the closest to this, it might be her. But then I find some hope even in her story. Because you've probably heard the name Corey Timboom. In her book, The Hiding Place, I read this again this week. She's talking about a meeting that she had with one of the guards. And it is hard for us to imagine what that must have been like. He was one of the guards at Ravensbrook, a concentration camp, it said, where her sister died. And she said, it was at a church service in Munich that I first saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower where I stood naked in front of him at the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first one of our actual jailers that I'd had since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and my dear sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. He said, how grateful I am for the message to think, as you say, that I have been washed by the blood of Jesus, that he washed away my sins. And he thrust out his hand to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest park of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Jesus said, you cannot control your Christianity. But that is how our Christianity is meant to control us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.